From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. Uh, my name is Chris Borelli. I'm a culture reporter at the Chicago Tribune. And when I was growing up, I probably wanted to be a, an astronaut for a really long time. And then for uh, for a while, too, I wanted to be a, a scallop uh, fisherman because they were away from home a lot for months and months on end. And they were really rowdy and kind of they were the, the big characters in town, you know, the, the ones who swore and drank a lot. And they were always getting arrested for kind of fun things, not like, you know, violent things, but really fun things like, I don't know, like tearing somebody's fence off their house and leaving it in the middle of the street or probably I'm sure they were violent people, too. But um, I was really young and they just seemed like role models. Christopher Eric Borelli is a features and culture writer for the Chicago Tribune. By his own admission, a bland title. But there is nothing bland about what he writes and how he writes it. Borelli was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1971 to a third-generation Italian immigrant family. Jaws, Star Wars, Springsteen and Peanuts are the things that shaped his childhood. I was a typical latchkey kid, he says, and it is still pop culture that shapes him. Today he writes about what for most of us is the mundane, the ordinary, the everyday, with a richness and curiosity that defies the genre. He finds the meaningful in celebrity and the texture in what might otherwise be tabloid. Chris Borelli, what was it like growing up in, in Rhode Island? You say you were a, a latchkey kid. Yeah. Well, Rhode Island, I don't know how much you know about Rhode Island, but Rhode Island is a really weird place. Even within New England, it's kind of the uh, the black sheep of New England. Boston is about an hour north of Providence, and New York is about two hours south. Rhode Island is kind of half a uh, fishing community, in a way, and tourist community. It's not that much differently different than Sydney, I suppose, in some ways. It's very... It's very much based around the ocean. And then the city itself, Providence, is a classic Italian city, basically. My mother, in fact, used to have a bumper sticker on the back of her Jeep that said Providence, Italian-owned and operated, which is very true. <laughs> the seat of the New England mafia is based in Providence still to this day what exists of it. But when I was a kid, it, there, were, there were gangland slayings in Providence, like fairly regularly in my own neighborhood. People... I mean, really, it was like, like the Godfather. It was kind of hilarious. I mean, it's not hilarious, but <laughs> but it's kind of hilarious in retrospect. Um, my mother worked at the Providence City Hall. She about we have actually about three generations in the Providence City Hall, and and my mother worked on different finance departments and retirement offices and things like that, which sounds kind of bland, except that. Providence City Hall is kind of famous still to this day for incredible, incredible corruption. And the, the mayor, when I was growing up, went to jail. He was in jail for about 10 years. He left. He ran for mayor again and won again. And um, he was in jail again after that. <laughs> so he's, he's dead now, so we can't really libel him. But he was kind of a scumbag, definitely. But he would also – he was – you know, this is this is probably a perfect way of explaining to you what Providence is like. Christmas Eve every year while we were having our big Italian Christmas dinner, he would show up with a fruit basket. He would show up with a fruit basket. The mayor. The mayor would show up with a fruit basket and his bodyguards, right? He would show up. He would deliver. He would shake everybody's hand. He would say, Merry Christmas. And then he would leave. And then we would go back to eating our dinner. These mafioso types, did you yeah. know them? I mean, yeah. how, how closely connected were them. you to this community? You know, I hate to drag you know my Italian name into these kind of things because it, it sounds so cliche, but... I mean, my family knew them, knew of them, things like that. It wasn't like I was hanging around with them. I certainly, 
I, you know, I played baseball with basically the, the sons and, and daughters in some cases of people who were connected, who were in the mob. I mean, it was the thing that you didn't really talk about. A lot of the cliches about this stuff is pretty accurate in some weird way because it's, it's the kind of thing that it's out there, but you don't really, you really don't talk about it very much. There's a level of corruption that's endemic in, in New England, especially New England, but probably mostly Rhode Island and Providence. That's kind of accepted. It's like, it's how things get done in a lot of ways. You know, even to this day, the mayor I was talking about, his name was Buddy Sancy. He's thought of as a very good mayor. And in a lot of ways, he was. The city became a terrific city under him. I mean, they they literally changed the path of the rivers and in some ways like Chicago. It, it went from kind of almost like a, a New England Rust Belt state in a way, a Rust Belt city to, you know, just this very vibrant culture. And today it's considered, I mean, it's, it's considered if you're going to eat out, certainly you're going to eat in Providence over Boston. It's a, it's a great city. And in a lot of ways, he helped shape that. So that kind of contradiction is that, you know, I, I, it's something that you live with. You accept it. You know, he, he did a lot of bad things, but the result was a, a terrific. I mean, I love Providence to this day. And it's not because of the corruption, but because it's beautiful. And this guy helped do that. You, you describe <laughs> yourself as a, a, a typical latchkey kid. Yeah. Where was mom? Where was dad? Right, right. Uh, well, my father died really young when I was very, very young, so I never really knew him. But my mom worked for City Hall, like I mentioned, and she would, come, you know, she would come home eh, probably typical hour. But like I was home often, or you know, early on, I played baseball, I played hockey, which is kind of the law in New England. You play, especially hockey, you have to play it. Uh, you know, I would come home often, and when I didn't have practice or something, and I would have two, three hours of time. I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing now, especially in the United States. People talk about there's this nostalgia for the days of when you had lots of free kids, especially had lots of free sort of unscheduled time, you know, and now it was kind of a classic example of that. I just, you just had nothing to do. So you would kind of roam the neighborhood like, you know, like a pack of, of animals, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and when you weren't doing that, you were staying home and you were watching TV, you were watching reruns of things or, you know, I was watching the Merv, Merv Douglas show and uh, I don't know, it's strange, uh, you know, Monty, old episodes of Monty Python and Star Trek and reading comic books. And so culture becomes the thing that you do most of the time. It's like you go to school all day and then you're home and then you get this other separate education that's completely based around, you know, sort of fabricated things. But you have so much time with it that you kind of learn, if, if you're really attuned to it, you learn the subtleties of it and you learn like, you learn what's smart there, you know, like you, know, you mentioned peanuts. I mean, I love peanuts, but I love peanuts probably because it kind of get it, gets at that melancholy of what it's like as a kid. And even as a kid, I recognize that. But yet an acute attention to detail yeah. for those things. Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? I mean, that if, if this is a self-taught right. educational process, yeah. uh, where did you develop the eye for these little nuances? Pro probably from a combination of reading a lot, which, you know, if, if you read a lot, and I read a lot, a lot. I mean, I was just obsessed with the library. I would go home and I would take, I'd go to the library and I would take out the limit of how many books you could take out. And you'd read them all? I'd read them all, yeah. And and so reading, you know... Reading, and, you, and you played sport and you had friends. Yeah, 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 definitely. But again, like, I feel like that's, that was normal in a lot of ways, you know? Like, I was a normal kid. I was very normal, you know? I'm, but I think, you know, reading a lot, you do become just attuned to detail. But I will also say this, like, if you watch a lot of reruns, if you watch movies a lot, you know, you mentioned Jaws. I've seen Jaws countless times. Or Star Wars. Every every beat in Star Wars, I could tell, you know what I mean? Every line, there's, it's sort of like, it's in my head some way. When somebody, when I'm out in the out on the day or something, and I hear somebody say something like, um, 
I don't know. You know, if they if they say a line, if they say something with a certain inflection, it, to me it sounds like, oh, that's the line of somebody who's like they're attacking the Death Star. That's the way they say that line. I mean, you just he- you hear the rhythm of the line in, in just people's everyday speech. And so I guess when you ask about detail, I think it's because if you see something or hear something so many times, sometimes you do become attuned to like the subtleties in that thing. You know, like I've heard Born to Run so many times. It kind of lives for you every single time if you're if you're listening closely and the really good stuff i mean i think so you could, still find if you, you sat down today and watched jaws yeah yeah i still for find the 101st stuff. time absolutely yeah and i think that's true it's like i i cannot remember who said this but a, a famous arts line is that you know a, a classic is something that every time you go back to it there's something else there like it doesn't die it's always so it feels always fresh for you in some way and so yeah i think i think that's true like uh, jaws i mean i don't know I, watch, I remember watching this much later, probably into in my 30s at some point, and realizing for the first time that the camera in, in a lot of the ocean scenes is at the ocean level. It's at the ocean level. And if you're watching it the right way, the you know it kind of rises a little bit above the lens at times. So you so it's almost like the camera is at the at the very horizon of the ocean so that you're always aware that there's something underneath, right? And so you're always and you're always aware of something above. And that's like it's a, it's psychologically brilliant. A way of doing something, right? I mean, it really is because it kind of sits in your head that there's something underneath there. And I think, you know, basically what it does is when you see a movie like that at a really young age, you, you turn out to become a paranoid nutcase like me. In his last year of high school, Chris Borelli decided he wanted to be an arts writer. For no other reason, really, than free movie tickets. I was going to do it anyway, he says. And I figured out they may pay me for it too. Is that really all there was to it? No, I mean, I I like to write a lot. I mean, I like to write. I don't think I was particularly good at it. But you do recognize that I was reading lots of rock critics and I was reading lots of movie critics especially. And and it does kind of get in your head that, you know, there are – people out there who do this like <laughs> this isn't just like coming out of the ether and landing in the newspaper or magazine or rolling stone or whatever like there's people who are out there to do this and they're paid pretty well to do this right and some of them i mean some of them had clearly they were over my head they were you know at a certain age you're just like i don't know exactly what they're talking about but i realize it's it's interesting and probably important in some ways i mean it, it sounds i mean it sounds kind of specious now to say um you want to do <laughs> you want to do a job because you think you can get it would pay you to do the things you want to do anyway. But, I mean, that seemed like a, an honourable thing. The topics, though, that you write about yeah. are odd sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Very small editorial scope sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll pick a topic that I think for most people, journalistically, you wouldn't necessi- necessarily see a story in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's often mundane. Right. Uh, it's the everyday. Yeah. How do you decide what it is that you're what I'm going to work on? Going to write about, yeah, yeah. My ideal story is some nugget of the everyday that amplifies what everybody is doing anyway, or it kind of amplifies the way we live. Give right? me an example of that. So, an example would be, I don't know why this came to mind, but maybe about seven years ago, when Netflix was kind of taking over, it was just kind of getting going, and it was still really primarily based around DVDs. You know, and they were very good at turning around discs really quickly. I'm not sure how they how good they were at it here in Australia, but in the US they you would put a disc in the mail and they would get a you would get a new disc back from your queue 
uh, I don't know, with less than 24 hours later. And it was amazingly fast. And, and the, you know, the post office is, in the U.S. is not considered very fast at all. So, you know, it just comes from that simple question of how, how are they able to do this, right? How are they able to do this? And so I, I literally called Netflix and said, how are you able to get this to me this quickly? I talked to them for a little while, and they kind of let slip that they have this and this is not really a secret, but they have these little distribution hubs all over the United States. This is a long story, but I'll explain it faster. <laughs> so <laughs> That's the name of the podcast. It's a long story. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. You've got time. That's right. That's right. Good point. Um, so they, I asked if I could come see a distribution hub, which sounds incredibly boring. Incredibly. I mean, it's a distribution hub. But I, I'm curious, because if people are able to get discs out to you that fast, there are physical people probably out there that are doing it, and those people probably have carpal tunnel syndrome, I'm guessing. So uh, I went out and I found this. I, they, they gave me the address to this place that's out in the western suburbs in Chicago, and it's the most nondescript place possible because they don't want anybody to know that in this building or or hundreds and hundreds of thousands of DVDs, basically. So there's no, there's not even an address actually on the building itself. Um, I spent a day, actually I spent two days there, just watching them, watching them kind of sort discs for the entire Midwest in a day. And you just become kind of fascinated with the rhythm of these people and who these people are, who, you know, the kind of jobs they're doing, because often they're, they have, it's menial labor, basically, they're not making very much money. But it kind of, it gets at something about work. And it kind of gets at something about like how America certainly you want everything right now. Everybody, well, it's true for everybody, I guess. You want everything right now, but here are the ramifications of it. Here are the people who are sorting your your Netflix discs, and they're not making very much money on it, but they're doing it at four o'clock in the morning, and they have to meet a quota of like five hundred every half hour or something, some crazy thing like that. But also, they're dealing with the funny things like the the Netflix um, envelopes. With every disc came in, a, will come in a little envelope. Well, people would send things back to them. They thought that there was, you know, they you would they would get naked pictures of people. They would get, you know, wrappers from fast food restaurants shoved into them. They would get little mini movie reviews that people would write on a piece of paper and shove them back in, and then send them back to Netflix as if Netflix was really, you know, wanted them somehow. Um, I don't know. All of those things speak to me about some. There's something about that that sounds desperate and American at the same time, and it, to me, it, it amplifies something more than just a DVD distribution center. So you find these tiny details, yeah, yeah. and the beautiful mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. the richness mm-hmm. in the kind of ordinary. Do you think that's a bit like what you were doing as a teenager, as a kid, watching the reruns for the fifteenth time, and? finding those details yes i mean it can also go uh, it's, it can uh, it can be a bad thing too in a way because you could kind of the trouble with what i do is that and it's tr- true of i think probably a lot of people write about culture as you can see something is so monumental even though it's not that really that important ultimately like you're making a mountain out of something that's not worth it um so you can you can kind of make something you can make too much of something it's not because i'm trying to test people's patience but because i kind of feel like there's more to it there I, around halloween this year in the us i wrote a history of trick or treating right because trick or treating seemed to be on the decline in the united states so lots of people certainly really? yeah certainly it seems massive it does seem massive except that in like lots of neighborhoods now get nobody you get nobody I mean, my mother has seen a slow steady decline in trick or treaters in the united states right um, where I live in Chicago, we get almost no one. Really, it's kind of weird. Whereas other neighborhoods get lots of people. And partly this is because parents are worried. They're worried about kids 
um, kind of roaming the streets, which is really was the old image of trick or treat. You're mm. kind of out there on your own for about three or four hours, hitting up strangers' homes and asking them for candy, which sounds insane to a lot of adults now. I mean, why would I, they let their kids do that, right? Curious about whether trick or treat was actually trick or treat was actually on the decline. I started talking to parents. I started looking into what happened, and it, it turns out, you know, in some ways, parents are taking their kids to other neighborhoods. So you end up with this outflux of of children going from in often often middle class neighborhoods, which trick or treat was a classic middle class neighborhood kind of thing. Right? They take their kids out of those neighborhoods, which often, in, especially if you're in a city, the city doesn't, maybe in Chicago, say it's middle-class neighborhoods are a little less safe than upper-class neighborhoods, right? I mean, that's probably true of a lot of places. But what they end up doing is they literally, in some ways, they're busing these kids into better neighborhoods. And so those better neighborhoods... Because <laughs> the sweets are going to be good. <laughs> yeah, they're giving the full-size candy bars there, you know. But they're, they're you know, it, it feels a little bit safer. So there's this weird gentrification of trick-or-treat going on. But also what's interesting is, you know, trick-or-treat was incredibly violent. It was incredibly violent all over the place. I mean, it was an Irish-Scottish tradition that really kind of took off in the United States after World War II when sugar bans were lifted and before World War II. It was very violent. And in the history of that in, in Chicago was incredibly violent. People were killed. Cops were shot. There were, I mean, I found, a, I found an example of a teenager, a teenage Halloween party in Chicago that the cops showed up and the teenagers fired on me. <laughs> <laughs> and like three people were killed. <laughs> it's not funny, but that's the history of this kind of mundane tradition, you know? It's it's interesting because at the time it was it was very much about kids from poor and middle class families going to rich neighborhoods and the treat part of trick, right? Was to kind of appease those kids. It's like, okay, give them something so they'll get the hell out of here, right? right? And that's how Trick or Treat kind of started. It was uh, essentially you're buying buying them off, buying them off so that they wouldn't like you know set fire to the houses. And I, and I am not exaggerating when I say set fire to the houses, or slash their tires, or pull their pull the porch away from their homes and leave it in the middle of the street. When I read your writing, though, yeah. it strikes me that you're finding the poetry. In in people's everyday life, you yeah. wrote about a couple with a with a moonlight cinema on their rooftop. Yeah, it was beautiful. My editors did not love that story. I'll say, <laughs> yeah, it went, through, it went through a couple drafts. So anyway, <laughs> you're deliberately looking for the poetic. You know, I started this column at the Tribune about you know, let's say August called "Being There," and the idea is to just find the story. To, to take whatever nugget of actual news is in in something, in that case, um, gentrification, right, in the city, and put it put it in the background of the story, place it as the backdrop to the story, and and focus on the details in these people's actual lives and the setting and location. I don't know. It's it's funny. Even as I explain it to, even as I'm explaining this to you, it sounds kind of mundane thing. And and I've had cert, certainly plenty of editors and journalists ask me, well, what's the point of that? I think I think the point of it is to kind of spotlight in a way that kind of obvious thing that everybody has a story to tell, and these people and and often their story resonates for other people in in surprising ways if it's if if it's done correctly. You write about celebrities sometimes. I'll, I'll just in say an unconventional this. way. It's though. definitely unconventional way. Definitely, I won't do them. If it's just like the standard, like they want to meet you in a hotel room and talk about their movie for a half hour, I will never do that. Like I will ever, never, ever do that. One time I did that recently was, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago and I met Mark Wahlberg in a hotel in, in, in Chicago and 
again, you're looking for the thing that's not the story. Like, I really don't want to mention this movie. I couldn't. I can't even tell you right now what that movie was that he was promoting. I don't remember. You know, I, I really don't remember it. But while I was there, um, his brother is Ari Emanuel, who's a big uh, agent in L.A., and Ari Emanuel's other brother is Rahm Emanuel, who's the mayor of Chicago. So um, when I get there, Mark Wahlberg's phone rings, and it's the mayor, and he's calling him to see if he can come meet him for lunch. And he doesn't. He, Mark Wahlberg doesn't necessarily have time to go meet him for lunch, so they hang up, and then the phone rings again. Are you sure? I'm the mayor of Chicago. You have to meet me for lunch, you know? <laughs> and it's this whole thing. And so, um, you know, th- those are the kind of tip- – they're actually a weirdly typical things that happen when you're in those sort of situations – but what I thought of is what's much more interesting is to write about that and not the movie or anything else. It's just to write about Mark Wahlberg's relationship with his phone in a way, right? The publicists would love that. Yeah, well, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they kind of know what they're getting into with me often with these stories. But I, um, I mean, I would say that I get offered them less than I used to, <laughs> which is perfectly fine with me. I didn't really want to do them. Um, but I, I do like I like doing them when the when there's something there that's le- that's more than the actual promoting of a movie. You know? you've been writing about Kanye West. Yeah, this I have. Year. I find Kanye Kanye's fascinating. I wrote about Kanye a couple of years ago, and I've written. I just yeah, I've written a couple times about him this year. We hate Kanye, don't we? <laughs> do do we though? See, I think I don't know. I think Kanye is. Um, I think Kanye is too easy of a target. He makes himself too easy of a target. He just recently met with with Trump, right, or something. Yeah, that's but what's meaningful about Kanye West? What's important about Kanye West? Yeah, yeah. This is a, this is called the long story, right? Not the epic story. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really long. This is a really long answer. To that you know, you could just say on a really basic level that his music is terrific, and it really is. I think. I think there's no. There's no more consistent hip hop artist out there. More that that's sort of more willing to push the limits of what that medium is, with what it's about, what the genre is about. It's there's no more, there's somebody no no more consistent, right? It, it certainly the music is caustic, beyond caustic at times. It's very sexist at times too. It's 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 kind of contradictory. He's also he, this is more true now with artists like Drake, I suppose. But um, Drake is taking a, a lesson from Kanye and being really self-critical. So what's interesting about Kanye, what's probably really important about Kanye is that, you know, he, he wanted to, he kind of wanted to see hip hop not as something where it was a very boastful kind of medium, right? Instead, he wanted to say, you know, I'm screwed up. I'm completely screwed up. I don't even know what I'm doing here. If you listen to Kanye, I mean, Kanye is an easy target, but Kanye's music is actually really incredibly thoughtful and, and difficult. Diff- I mean, very difficult. Like he does not give you the thing that you're expecting to get. So, so I find I find him as an artist unpredictable and always interesting, and I think that's ultimately what's important about him. I, I note though you refer to him yeah. as an artist as, oppo- as opposed to a musician. Yeah, yeah. A- and it's kind of a performance angle. artist, really. I mean, it's really performance art in some ways. I mean, I mean, you could argue that his marriage to Kim, uh, Kim Kardashian is performance art, right? Not <laughs> I mean, maybe like really elaborate performance art. You know, that's not a weird argument to make. I mean, there's a degree of it there. I mean, he is, he's interested in design. He's interested in fashion. He's sort of he's very much interested in in legacy. What what he means in terms of of how art kind of can be this sort of integral integrated thing where you can you don't have to be just a musician anymore. You can kind of make videos, and those videos can be considered like an installation art. Right. I mean, it's it's not I don't say any of this is necessarily original, but there's not many artists who are willing to do that now, who are kind of willing to go out on a limb and frankly be hated for it. So, I mean, I I don't know. I think 
I, I'm not sure. I'm not definitely not making the case from right now. I recognize that. If anybody listening to this is like, this guy's an idiot. Um, and I've got, I've gotten those emails. So get in line, you know, <laughs> but do you get a lot of hate mail? I mean, sometimes. Cause yeah. you write stuff that is quite agitative. Yeah. Like yeah. The Chicago tr- Cubs were yeah, yeah. <laughs> about to win the world series. Right. Right. You took to the Chicago paper. Yeah. And yeah. wrote a column saying they shouldn't win. Yeah, yeah, don't and win. And everyone should back away from them. Yeah. Because this will ruin Be careful them what you wish for. And our city. Right, right. This is going to ruin you guys because it's going to go to your head and you're going to think you're all that and you're not all that. You've been kind of a crappy team for a very long time. Who and does it, that? Aren't you meant to get on board yeah, when yeah. the city's about to win the World Series? I guess so, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a shill for the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> I mean, I don't know anything to the Chicago Cubs. And and I as a as a Red Sox fan, I saw we went through it where we had you know, we had, hadn't won a World Series in something like 90 years. We won a World Series. And then we became the biggest douchebags in the country, you know? <laughs> Essentially, we became these, uh, you know, we, we felt like something was owed to us, you know? And and still to this day, I mean, New England sports are, are very, very arrogant, right? And Chicago, I feel, is like on that cusp of becoming arrogant with sports in a way. Like, they, especially with the Cubs. Like, you, you start to feel like... You know, um, uh, we're great, so we're the greatest people on earth. The problem with that is that you, you, you know, you you start you to know, expect. You know, you it. live in America, right? <laughs> yeah. I know, but this is there's all degrees of that in the United States. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm very naive, very naive. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say this because the Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs, there's nothing special about the Cubs now. See, what was special about the Cubs is they hadn't won a World Series and. I don't know. I forget how many years now. All like 100 years, basically, right? They didn't win a World Series in 100 years. Now they've won a World Series. Now there's nothing interesting about them anymore. They were never very interesting to begin with. Anyway, I'm sorry. This is I could go on. In 2016, Chris Borelli had his first child, Zora. The name <laughs> could be that of a superhero, someone that he might write about. But in fact, she's named after the African-American writer from the 20s and 30s, Zora Neale Hurston. Why Zora? The sort of straight answer is that if it was going to be a boy, we didn't know who it was going to be. It was going to be named Anthony after my grandfather. And and we thought, well, we have to have a, a girl's name. And, and I had been reading this, this great work of folklore from her over the summer um, named of Mules and Men. And I just said to my wife, Jen, what about Zora? Zora's a beautiful name. I feel like it's not that overused. It's certainly not Brooklyn or Madison or any of these <laughs> names, you know. And and but I think it's meaningful to me too because um, I kind of feel like in some ways I am a folklorist, sort of. In some ways, I mean that's kind of what I do. And and um, you know it gives it gives kind of a little bit of a link to that for me. And and you know and and it's a beautiful name. And she's a great writer. So I would say let me let me answer one other thing though. I'm gonna circle back slightly here. Hate mail. I recently spent a day at Paisley Park in Minneapolis, right? This was Prince's old studio. He recently died less than six months after he died. It's open now to tours. It's open to tours by the people that run Graceland, Elvis Presley's home. It's kind of a shallow museum as a museum goes, but it's also his working studio. And he, he is present in every corner of this place. It's a, The place is a freak show in so many ways. I mean, even the tour guides, are, they wear these long purple tunics, you know, it looks it looks like a cult. I mean, it really does. And Prince is, you know, famously was a freaky guy, right? A kind of pervy guy. The tour, the museum doesn't really recognize any of that. And I kind of felt like it needs to. 
Anyway, I wrote all about this, and it was a very widely read story, but I have not gotten a single nice email. I think because, you know, the people that really love Prince really love Prince, and, you know, God forbid you speak poorly of Paisley Park, which, you know, I'm not speaking poorly of Prince. I'm speaking poorly of a company that is, like, taking over his old studio and charging you $100 for a 100-minute tour. That's an actual thing. And, you know, calling a museum. I mean, that's, to me, not... It's not really accurate or or uh, not thoughtful certainly and and here's a guy who demands some thought so if people you want to take issue with that that's fine i think it's fair more than fair do you think what you do is a contemporary version of folklore then yeah i think so i mean yeah it is in the sense that you're documenting the way we live right and the way we live can kind of seem sort of superficial to a lot of people on the outside i mean the way i recently wrote about in Chicago, there's this thing called the um, the holiday train, and there's a holiday bus, too. And basically what they do is they – you would not recognize it here in Australia, but they take a couple – they take a public transportation train, subway train, and it's completely decked out with Santa Claus – a live Santa Claus, and the place – it looks like a, a – I don't know. It looks like a tra- traveling carnival, essentially, and it goes all around the city at different times. And do the same thing with the city bus. Santa Claus sits in the back of the bus, and – uh, you know, I, that's the way we live in some ways, that we're trying to, like, retain some sliver of the holiday in our daily lives, right? I mean, they only recently added the bus because the train the train was obvious, was an obvious thing for them. But the bus, you know, people who ride the bus are a little maybe down for a little bit generally further down the economic scale in Chicago, right? You know, they needed the bus. They needed the bus to kind of lift their spirits. And so I met with people who were bringing their kids to Santa Claus on the bus because that's all they could afford. That's interesting. That talks about the way we live. I mean, so so yeah. I mean, I guess it's it's folklore or folk it's folk writing in the sense that it's about ultimately, hopefully, about like how we live every day. It's not about a movie star. It's about how that movie star is dealing with his cell phone and you know that even even at that level, hopefully. And why is that important? What you do in this time of of huge global disruption, of uncertainty, yeah. of you know what feels like chaos. Yeah, I think because at the end of the day. You want to leave some kind of a record of what it was like to live right now. What was what's it like to live in 2016? What it's like to live in 2016 isn't necessarily the stories that are, are the major stories. It's not the stories that are trending on Twitter or whatever. It's it's often like the small small things that that kind of are, are just make up part of your day in a way, but they don't necessarily get recognized. I mean, I, I think some of the best writers out there are stand up comics, and I'm not saying I'm a stand up comic. I'm saying that they're attuned to uh, you know, sort of those minor, minor points in our day that we kind of take for granted, and that's what's really funny about them. Um, in some ways, of like really good writers, really good features writers, especially, they find the small details in in everyday life. I mean, you can see it every every week in the New Yorker. The talk of the town section is is basically full of stories like this. Less, mm. maybe less so than they used to be, but you know, I mean, that's it, that's a classic model of journalism, right? To to follow say, a tour group of kids coming into New York for a day and just follow them through the day and watch the little dramas that ensue between the children and the, the, the chaperone or what it's like to come from a farming community into New York for a day or something like that. That's that's a famous story uh, called The Yellow Bus from Lillian Ross. But that kind of thing is, I mean, to me, that's really important because reading that story now, and that was written in the early 50s, it gives you a window into what Manhattan was like in the early 50s. Do you think you see the world in a different way to other people? I mean, hopefully, because that's 
that's what makes your writing different than other people. But does that come naturally or do you have to try to find those details? You have to be super curious, I think. You know, I mean, and I think if you are just a naturally curious person, you you become attuned to those little weird habits of things. You know, I I mentioned to you earlier, I did a piece on the evolution of the hand dryer. Hand dryers for, um, I don't know how they are here in in Australia, but in the United States, they've become like almost like sonic engines, right? (laughs) Like these crazy, crazy loud things. (laughs) Like they could fly you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're like you're embarrassed to hit, put your hand under them because they're so loud, and you know, um, I mean, they not only you know dry your hands, but they they like remove a layer of skin at the same time. <laughs> but so that and that happened almost overnight in the United States. It really did, and it felt very strange. And you know, that was after years of kind of putting your hand under a hand dryer and, and coming away still a little damp, right? <laughs> Um, but I, I felt like there's something there. Like there are people who whose job it is to sit down and say, um, you know, I, we, I, we need drier hands in the United <laughs> States, right? Like that's their job. That is their job. And they're trying to revolutionize that in some way. And, and to, to them, it's important, right? It might sound silly to us or it might sound mundane. But, you know, if you've ever worked in any office, those kind of little dramas happen. You can – I guess what I'm trying to say here is that it doesn't really matter the subject. It's it's that it, there are people involved with that subject usually, and the people that are involved in that subject are probably going through something. And if you have the skill or the curiosity to f- pick up on what's happening there, it's interesting. I mean, that's like I mean, that's basically the foundation of great story writing. Period. Not 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 you know fiction too, right? I mean, every great story is often about the details of somebody's life. So. Um, I'll leave you there. Okay. Christopher Borelli, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Amish. Not too much babbling. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossop. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish McDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Ben Wood, Shane Johnson, and Ian Cooper, mixed by Brendan Zacharias. And our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.